You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now I get do not commit adultery because that's hurting somebody. That's, that's, there's, you know, victims involved. Do not steal. I, I get that. Do not murder. I get that. But why is coveting or envy a sin? It seems like it's a victimless crime. Who's, who's hurt by it? Well, it's a sin because it reveals in your heart that you are discontent with God and his providence. The one who envies or covets puts himself in the center of the universe. I should be honored. I should be glorified. I should be admired. And who does it harm? Well, think about it. This particular sin is the root of human conflict. It is the root of human conflict. I can become envious on behalf of my children. Think about mama bears and little league dads. I can become envious on behalf of my socioeconomic class. Think about eat the rich. I can become envious on behalf of my race or ethnic group. Boy, I tell you, there's a book out there called Mein Kampf. It's all about that. And you know what happened there. If you don't, ask me. When I don't or my group doesn't receive myself look... And Peter says, be holy, rid yourself of these behaviors, live counterculturally. Well, how do you do this? How do you do this? If it's something that dogs us, it's going to be with us all the time. Well, you have something that the world does not have. And that is you have the power and you have the word of God. And you have the ability now to be able to diminish the effects, to train that dog to leave your feet alone. But how do you do this? You have to continually go back to fundamentals. Go back to fundamentals. Now think of all the football coaches that you've seen doing interviews after a loss. I'm thinking that Dabo is probably having this talk with his kicker this morning. You got to go back to fundamentals. You missed a 30-yard chip shot and we lost the game. All these coaches talking about going to fundamentals. Well, Peter says... You should crave or long for pure spiritual milk, which is the gospel, the fundamentals. And the fundamentals of the gospel are, as I have already stated, I have a problem. Jesus made a payment. The spirit is my only source of power. And I need to pivot or change directions to constantly be renewing my thinking about who God is and who Jesus is and where I stand in all of this. When you go back to that milk, when you cure, when you crave that pure spiritual milk and you feast on that, that's how you grow. That's how you defeat that dogged sin that's clipping at your heels all the time. Around here, we're going to say such things as preach the gospel to yourself. And that's why our music is focused on the gospel. The words of our of our songs are focused on the gospel. The Lord's Supper that we're going to be having here soon celebrates 
the, the gospel itself and it's focused on the gospel. Our sermons are focused on the gospel. Our teaching from cradle to grave in the classrooms is focused on the gospel. And praise God, our counseling ministry that we're beginning is one that is 100% focused on the gospel. You start studying in our counseling ministry, Gary's going to slap a book in your hand called a gospel primer because that's what it is. It's the gospel. That's the cure. We focus on the pure spiritual milk of the gospel so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. That's what he says in verse 2. That's how you grow up. Give you an illustration. How many churches that I've been a part of or I know people that are a part of. How many Bible studies where I've sat in on where there's not a focus of the gospel. And you will find there some of the most immature Worldly focused people is because they're not craving the pure milk of the, of the gospel. They're craving something else that is man-made. In the early days, um, one of our former elders, Eric Farr, one of our founders, used to joke about how unlike many churches around us who are caught up in the church growth movement, Grace Fellowship is going to focus on the gospel and be on the leading edge of the anti-church growth movement, uh, recognizing that growth in health and maturity is far more important than growth in numbers. And that's a, that's a, a thing we said and we er, agreed early on, right, Dan? Is that growth and maturity and the health of the church was far more important than having numbers. Numbers are great. We want God to be bringing the numbers, but it's God who gives the increase. We need to focus on the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. And you know how in the South we say you need to have a come to Jesus you ever said that to anybody? We got to have a come to Jesus. What are we saying? Well, there needs to be a meeting. And in this meeting, we need to turn from the wrong ways we're doing, the wrong ways we're doing things, and we need to come to Jesus for a new and better way. Well, Peter says the same thing. He says that when you focus on the pure spiritual milk of the gospel, you will have your own come to Jesus moment. Look at verses four and five. As you come to him, through the pure spiritual milk, when you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, there's two things that occur. Number one, you will be built into a spiritual house. You'll be built into a temple to be a holy priesthood. So what is a temple? The temple and the tabernacle before it was a building that served as the focal point for the people of God. It represented the very presence of God in the nation of Israel. And what did the priests do? Well, they served the people of Israel by offering the sacrifices that the people made. When the people came and brought their sacrifices, the priests would go and they would actually perform the ritual of burning the sacrifices on the altar and serving the people in the temple. Under the new covenant, the role of the temple and the priesthood has been moved from a physical building and transferred to the church, but not this building, but to you and to me. We are temples of the Holy Spirit and we are priests of God. Believers are living temples of God's Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts. Believers offer spiritual sacrifices of praise and obedience 
through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul echoes this in in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In view of God's mercy, what Paul's saying here is that when you ponder that pure spiritual milk of the gospel and you're preaching the gospel to yourself regularly, you offer your body as a living sacrifice. And then he uses the word, this is your true and proper worship. The word in Greek, liturgas, is where we get the word liturgy. It literally means the service that the priests performed in the temple, the serving of the people Serving of the sacrifices to God. You do your priestly duty when you live obediently through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. When we deny the sinful nature. When we are able to push aside our natural predilections. When we rejoice in our salvation. When we repent. We truly repent. When we delight in being holy. And when we love one another in a supernatural way. In a way that's unnatural completely to this world. Then we are in a, in a sense offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's our priestly duty as we worship him at the temple. Not on Sunday morning. That's we, we, we are doing that. But that's what you do every day. To, in, in fact, to say that you go to worship and enter into worship in that sense is like a fish saying he's going for a swim. It's incongruous. You're in it all the time. Now, we have an assembly where we are worshiping corporately. But the, Paul's talking about what you're doing every day in your life. So that's the first thing that happens. That's your job as a priest. You're, you're built into this temple. You're built into a priesthood. But the second thing that happens is that just as Jesus, the living stone, was rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you, chosen by God and precious to him, will face the same reaction from those who do not believe. Look at verses 6 through 8. Peter writes, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. You see, Jesus was rejected by his own people. And he is rejected continually by anyone who seeks to justify himself. Those who consider themselves to be good enough to avoid God's wrath on their own are in a sense rejecting Jesus just as the Jews did in the first century. Now don't get me wrong. There are tons of people in lots of churches and in lots of places who accept Jesus, quote unquote who wear crosses around their necks, who attend church services, who call themselves Christians, they listen to the fish and they 100% reject Jesus. They believe in a false Jesus who loves everyone with no demand for personal holiness. They believe in a false Jesus who will bless them with health and prosperity. Or they believe in a false Jesus who simply is a self-help guru 
who professes a philosophy that will enhance your life if you follow his wise ways. Not only is he rejected, but the real Jesus, when he is proclaimed correctly, causes people to stumble and fall. So if you have a Jesus who doesn't cause people to stumble and fall, and we're going to talk about what that means here in a second, it's a false Jesus. Verse 8, traditionally interpreted in a lot of translations as he's the rock that causes offense, like as if I'm offended by Jesus in some way. I think it's a little stronger than that. It's not just simply, I don't like Jesus, his words are offensive to me. That's not really what it means. The Greek word here is the word skandalos, which is where we get the word scandal. It means a snare or a trap. So think of a politician who's caught in a scandal. Can you think of one? <clears throat> and how their career is ended by scandal? Okay, there's a few going on right now that I have a, mad, I have a feeling they're, they're done. When it says the, the, that he is a scandal, he is a stumbling block or a scandal, a scandalous. He's meaning it's the type of thing that grabs a hold of somebody and pulls them away from where the direction that they are going. I am a politician and my career path is taking me this way. I'm shooting for presidency, but I get caught in the scandal and I'm done. That's what a scandal is. That's what a scandalous is. That's what Pete, that's what Jesus does to people. When they stand and justify themselves, it's a snare and they get caught in it and they can't go in that direction when they see the real Jesus. So they may find another Jesus that doesn't do that to them, but the real Jesus will catch them up every time. He also is called a rock that makes them fall. It's that rock, you know, when you're hiking and your legs are getting tired and you're not picking your legs up high enough and you trip over that one rock that's sticking up in the trail. That's the rock that causes men to stumble. If you're not picking your feet up high enough, the snare catches you, the rock trips you up. And in both cases, I can't proceed on the path that I intended. I've been trapped. I can't move or I fall flat on my face and break my nose. Either way, my reaction is going to be denial, deflection, anger, embarrassment, cover up, whatever necessary. And unbelievers are on a path towards self-righteousness and rebellion against the holy God. And when they are faced with the real Jesus, he trips them up, makes them fall flat on their face. And how do you think they might react to that? Denial, deflection, anger, embarrassment, cover up. Or, if God so wills, mourning and repentance. And praise God that that happened with you and me, right? So if Jesus is rejected and his words cause people to fail in their attempts to justify themselves, what do you think is going to happen when you proclaim the real Jesus? You're going to be rejected. People are going to call you ignorant, politically incorrect, and naive, People are going to react with disdain when you proclaim the real Jesus. Man, I tell you, I many times have been in Bible studies and discussions with people and they're talking about the Bible and how it's in a life enhancement. And then I bring up Jesus and how Jesus is actually the one who has the power and the one who does it all. And I'm bankrupt without Jesus and kind of the room just sort of goes silent. Oh, um, okay. But we really ought to be more like Job. And it's, come on, man. Come on. 
unless God is working on them and preparing their soil to receive the word, and that's why we go into all the world, people are going to reject Jesus. But we go into the world, we plant, we cultivate, we distribute the seed, and if God is there, and if he is preparing their soil to receive the seed, we plant and we water, but what does God do? He gives the increase. God gives the increase. So when you come to Jesus, you will become a temple of God, and you will be rejected by unbelievers if you're proclaiming the real Jesus. And that brings us to verses 9 and 10. Peter continues the indicative because he's getting ready to introduce a long section of imperatives. And it's okay, because I understand the, um, the difference between a long sermon and hostage-taking is just a fine line. Um, we're not going to get into all those imperatives today. But knowing who you are as the temple of God is the only way that you can endure this rejection and the persecution that is going to come upon you when you proclaim the real Jesus. And so that's why Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's going back to the indicative. He goes back to his first point in chapter 1, verse 1. You're God's chosen people. And just as God chose Israel, the descendants of this one man, Abraham, he chose them from among all the other nations. He chose you and me from among all the other people in the world. He says, you're a royal priesthood. And Peter actually quotes Exodus 19.5 from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because it renders it just a little bit differently. He renders that passage, it's you are a kingdom of priests. You see, the priesthood was intended initially for all of God's people. All of God's people were supposed to be priests. That was the original design. However, when the people of Israel rebelled against Moses and built the golden calves, there was only one tribe that remained loyal, and that was Levi. And so God rewarded them with the priesthood because they remained loyal. What Peter is saying is that the priesthood has been restored to all of God's people. There is no one set of people who are a priest within God's people. It's everybody. You are a priest. Not only that, you are a holy nation. In the, word, in the Greek, the word is ethnos hagion. Ethnos is where we get the word ethnic. He's literally saying that we are an ethnicity that is set apart. Holy means to be set apart. We're an ethnicity that is set apart. Now in the Old Testament, in the old times of Israel, you were either of the nation of Israel or you were of the other nations. So you were either in this nation or those nations. There was a dichotomy between the two. Israel was distinguished from the rest initially by birth because they were the descendants of Abraham. But soon thereafter, people from other nations began to be added to the nation of Israel through the covenant, through promises, and through their commitment to God in their hearts. Think of Rahab. Think of Ruth. These people were added to the people of Israel. They, didn't, they were not ethnically connected to Abraham, but they had the faith of Abraham. 
Because in reality, as Paul says in Romans 2.29, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Even if one is a descendant of Abraham, he is not truly of the nation of Israel unless he shares the faith of Abraham. Let me say that again. Even if you're a descendant of Abraham, and we have some of you here, and I praise God that you have the faith of Abraham, he is not truly of the nation of Israel unless he shares the faith of Abraham. And so, for example, the modern nation of Israel is a country, and I love that country, and I, and I love what they're doing, and they're a great ally to the United States, but that's not the holy nation of Israel. They may be the descendants of Abraham by blood, but that nation is not God's holy nation. You are God's holy nation. The holy nation of God, his true Israel, is believers from every tribe and every tongue who have been chosen by God, justified by the blood of Jesus, and are being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are also God's special possession. In that same passage, Exodus 19.5, where we find Israel referred to as a kingdom of priests, we also find God referring to Israel as my treasured possession from among all peoples. In times past, years ago, in all other cultures, in order to show that one belonged to a certain, my, my cases would wear a symbol, a crest, a family crest, a coat of arms, or a tartan, to demonstrate their family connection. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, Now it is God who makes both of uh, both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So God seals us. It's a seal that indicates his ownership, his protection, and guaranteed right of passage through his land. And by giving us the Holy Spirit, God puts a stamp on us. Just picture him doing, that, that one's mine, that one's mine. He puts a stamp on you. And he endows you with real power to be more and more conformed to the image of his son. Safe passage through the land. The Holy Spirit marks you as God's possession and empowers you to live a life that is pleasing to your owner and reflects his ownership. Again, these are the indicatives. You're a chosen people, a holy nation, kingdom of priests, God's own possession. And just as in the first part of the letter that we looked at last week, Peter goes to great lengths to show them who they are. And he does this first. Why? Why does he say you're chosen? Why does he say you're made righteous, being sanctified, heirs of the king, those who rejoice in the salvation? Because who you are determines what you do. Who you are determines what you do. In chapter 1, he said, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance because you're holy. Be holy in all you do because God is holy. Love one another deeply, which is not the way the world thinks. Peter does this again in the second part. Why? Because he knows that the natural inclination of man is to say what you do determines who you are. And so Peter says, I've got to give you these indicatives first. I got to lay this foundation. And he does it twice. The beginning of chapter one and again in chapter two, because it's that important. He doesn't just come right out of the gun in first Peter and say, do this, do this, do this, do this. Religion would say, yeah, it's the way it works. But Christianity says, no, 
I need to tell you who you are to motivate you to do these things. Man-centered religion would say that the indicative shows that you have achieved success in the imperative. In other words, you're a chosen people. You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You're God's special possession because you distinguished yourself from all the heathen sinners out there and chose the way of the light. I believed that for many years as a Christian, incorrectly, but I believed that. You know, if man-centered religion were true, if what I believed was true, then the second part of verse 9 should say, you're chosen, you're holy, etc., so that everyone should declare my glorious achievements because I resisted the darkness and achieved enlightenment. But it doesn't say that. Instead, Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are these things not because of what you did, but because of what God did. You might say, well, sure, God called me out of darkness, but I responded. I had to do my part, right? Don't forget, you were dead. You were dead. You had no ability to respond. You were given new birth. Until you were given that new birth, until you were given a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, until you were given a new desire for God, you were dead. It was God who made you alive. And that's why you responded as you did. Everyone whom God chooses to make alive through the new birth will respond as you did. And that's why we praise him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so finally in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does he mean by once you were not a people? In other words, he's saying you were indistinguishable from all of the other people in the world. Think of the book of Hosea. Hosea was told, if you understand the book, Hosea was told by God to go and take a wife out of um, prostitution. This woman was a prostitute. Take her as a wife. And so he does. And she doesn't change. She just goes right back into her old practices. And it's an incredible heartbreak for Hosea. And God is illustrating to the people of Israel, primarily the people of the northern kingdom when the kingdom was divided. He's illustrating to them through Poor Hosea, who has to go through this. He's illustrating how he feels. He says, I'm looking at you. You're my people. You, you, you wear my name. You've got the temple. You have all these things. You've broken away. You've created your own system. And really, you're not my people. And he actually tells Hosea to name his first child, not my people. What a, what a great name to have hung around you for the rest of your life. Hey, I'm not my people. But that's the point. And like the people of Israel, when the book of Hosea was written, you might have even thought you were a godly, good person, even a Christian. But like them, God would say to you, would say to me, you are not my people. You're not my people. Not if you reject me in that way. But now that's changed. Just as Hosea showed mercy to his adulterous wife and took her back, God has shown you and me mercy. We we deserve to remain in our rebellion. 
We deserve to remain outside of the nation, outside of the family, but God in his mercy didn't give us what we deserved. Instead, he made us alive. He adopted us into his family. He made us into a holy nation. And now we are the people of God. Is it not crystal clear, guys, who you are, what God has done for you, and how he has empowered you? This is the indicative. Nothing more need to be said. And it's on this foundation and only on this foundation that Peter moves into the imperative section, beginning with verses 11 and 12. When he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. A foreigner is somebody who lives in a city, but they don't own, they may even own a house, but they don't have the rights to vote. They don't have the rights as a citizen, but they live there. When I was in college, I lived in the dorm in Tennessee, but I had a Florida driver's license and voted in Florida elections. I was a resident, but I was a foreigner. Exiles, that is like a fish out of water. It's like when you spend time in a foreign culture. Their ways are foreign to you, and your ways are foreign to them. I tell my mission team, don't be the ugly American. Try to not stick out. And I think Peter might be saying kind of the opposite of that. He's saying that we are in this culture But we need to stick out. We need to stick out. Now, a lot of people think, now, wait a minute. We don't need to engage with the culture because the culture is going to pull us down. No, Peter is saying you do live here and you do have a duty to critique the culture. You need to engage the culture and you you can even make culture here. It's not the culture that we're warring against. We can't bring light into the culture if we're walking in darkness. That's what he's saying. If we're walking, if we're not being holy, we can't help this culture at all. Peter is saying, be strangers and exiles from the fleshly lusts and sinful desires that drive so much of this world's culture. And when the culture runs counter to the ways of God, we should live counterculturally. We are in a constant state of war, but not with the culture and definitely not with unbelievers. Remember, we live among them as foreigners and exiles. We're at war with our own sinful desires. And our war is not with the culture, but with these sinful desires and the ideas, philosophies, and systems that feed sinful desires. Envy, favoritism, sexual deviance, etc. So that's why we engage with the culture. But carefully, we're not at war with the people, with unbelievers. Peter says, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And I invite the band to come on back up and get set up as I finish up. As we live in and engage with our culture, we should do, as Peter says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, is Peter simply saying here that living a moral life in front of unbelievers is going to cause them to glorify God at his coming? Yes and no. What do you mean, yes? Yes, in that on the day he visits us, when when Jesus does come back, 
We will be vindicated when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Unbelievers are going to have their eyes opened to the glory of God's righteousness and they will glorify him for his justice, albeit through weeping and gnashing of teeth. But no, simply living a moral life in front of unbelievers is not going to cause them to glorify God because living a good life among the pagans will provoke them to rejection but might also provoke some of them to ask you for a reason for your hope. And that's why Peter in chapter 3, which we'll look at maybe some other day, Lord willing, will say, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel must be proclaimed and people must be challenged and persuaded and convicted of their sin, and that doesn't happen by osmosis. Peter says that this takes preparation, and it must be done with gentleness and respect, because Jesus is a snare and a rock that causes people to trip and fall, and you are the one there to pick up the pieces. If we never proclaim the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus in the way that the Bible proclaims it, No one will ever be offended. No one will ever be snared. No one will ever be tripped up. And no one will ever be saved. The rest of 1 Peter pushes this concept of living a good life because of who you are into the realm of slaves, spouses, sufferers, and servants. And Lord willing, I'll have another opportunity uh, someday soon to teach on this the rest of this letter. And until then, I recommend that you read the rest of the short letter in light of what we've learned these past two weeks with the indicative leading the imperative. And may God bless us with the power of the Holy Spirit to know who we are and to live in such a way as to make God look good. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.